Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm really grateful to have this interview with Dr. Gail Sauls airing at this time. Last week here in the States, we heard about two pretty public suicides, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, and it raised a lot of questions in people and I think triggered a lot of people too. And obviously, these two people are not the only two people to take their lives Suicide is a very confusing thing to understand. In fact, I don't think that we can truly understand it. And a lot of questions emerge like, why? Did anyone know? Did they ask for help? Is there something that could be done? Does it make sense when someone takes their own life, especially when it looks so good from the outside, yet we never really know what's happening on the inside? So many people suffer in silence and feel alone, feel hopeless, feel helpless, and like there's no way to reach out and no way to escape the darkness that they feel inside. I did a little research, and this is not to bring you down or to bring heaviness to this, but just to really raise awareness that suicide rates increased in nearly every state in the U.S. in 2016, with rates raising more than 30% in half of states. There's one suicide death every 11.9 minutes and one suicide attempt every 29 seconds. These statistics remind me of how important it is to pay attention to mental health and undo the stigmas. There's so much shame around depression, anxiety, bipolar, ADHD, any of the mental illnesses that people suffer in silence rather than really reach out for help. And so that's why, like I said, I'm so grateful to have this interview with Dr. Gail Sauls on today. She has a book that we're going to be talking about, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. But let me just tell you a little bit about who Dr. Gail is. She's best known for her work as a relationship, family, emotional well-being, and mental health wellness contributor in the media, and frequently shares her expertise and advice in print, online, and in television. She's the best-selling author of numerous books and the go-to expert on a variety of important psychological issues. Her newest book, The Power of Difference, The Link Between Disorder and Genius, is available now, and we talk about the book in the interview. She's also the Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the New York Presbyterian Hospital, Cornell School of Medicine, a psychoanalysis with the New York Psychoanalytical Institute, and has a private practice in Manhattan. And my interview was scheduled with her for a while. It's actually been scheduled for two months But it was so timely that we recorded it this week because I was able to talk to her about suicide and about mental illness. And then we also go in to talk about her book, The Power of Difference, which really sheds light on the fact that so many of the mental health disorders and labels are also the catalyst for incredible gifts. And you'll learn more about that in our discussion. Before we dive into the interview, I want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Just Fab, which is changing the way women shop. I'm all about having great style without having to spend a fortune and without having to leave my home. <laughs> and with Just Fab, you'll get access to the fashion you'll love at a value you'll love as well. So millions of women say Just Fab is their go-to site for what's new and trending in shoes, clothing, accessories, even swimwear. Summer's coming. When you first visit JustFab.com, you take a style quiz, and after that, you get a personalized shopping experience with your favorite styles rising to the top. You can shop as a guest or become a VIP. Becoming a VIP is by far the best way to shop because you get 30% off retail prices with access to lots of exclusive sales and perks. I signed up as a VIP, which makes it so easy and fun to shop. I just log in every month to check out all the new fabulous styles. If I decide to shop, I'm charged $39.95. That's a credit I can use for anything on the site and it never expires. If not, I just skip the month and pay nothing. 
Imagine your favorite store was offering you a discount on all merchandise for life and all you had to do is check out what was new for each month with absolutely no pressure to buy. That's the value of a JustFab VIP membership. So don't wait. Here's your call to action. Go to justfab.com slash over it right now and sign up as a VIP. You'll get 50% off your entire order. That's right. Justfab.com slash over it to get half off everything on the site. Justfab.com slash over it. And now on to my incredibly powerful and important interview with Dr. Gail Sauls. Gail, welcome to the show. I've seen you on TV so many times. I so appreciate your wisdom and I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Your presence on this show is very timely because last week we got the very surprising news of two suicides, both of, of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. And I know that got caught a lot of people by surprise because these are two people who seemingly from the outside had amazing lives. And to hear about them taking their own life brings up a lot of questions. So I just wanted to, to, to start here because I know so many people have this on their mind with just mental illness and how many people suffer in silence. And what do you think we can learn from these, these recent suicides in terms of mental health and bringing our awareness to things like depression and anxiety? Well, I think that one thing that's very obvious uh, as a result of, of this kind of suicide of someone very public and very, very successful and very talented in a certain arena is that um, depression and suicide does not discriminate. You can have lots of money. You can have lots of ability. You can have what seems like from the outside a very full life, but you can still suffer with depression. You can still suffer with serious depression, serious anxiety. And in fact, often, as I'll probably talk with you later about. In fact, it is sometimes the people who are most talented in the world of creativity, as for example, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain both were, um, who are even more likely to have those kinds of struggles with depression, with anxiety, um, and with other mood issues. But the success doesn't keep them necessarily from having that struggle. And I think the other important takeaway is that actually the CDC just had just come out a couple of weeks before with the most current statistics on suicide. And the numbers are very disturbing. Uh, you know, national rate is up by 30 percent. It's up in every state except the state of Nevada. Um, it's up particularly in children and in teens and in women. And I think um, the numbers also basically said that close to half of people who committed suicide did not have a, quote, known mental health diagnosis. And people were sort of like, oh, wow, they weren't mentally ill. No, that's not what it means. It means that probably half of them had not seen a professional and received a diagnosis and therefore were not receiving treatment. And that's important because many people think, you know, that somebody very powerful and moneyed and successful and with family wouldn't have a mental health issue, period, as if that would be protective. But unfortunately, um, 
nobody is really protected. You know, there is a biology to these illnesses and um, one out of 10 people at some point in their life will experience a major depression or other mood disorder. And so it's important that not only your listeners know for themselves what might be the hallmark of something that they really should seek an evaluation and treatment for, but what might be a red flag in those they love, those that are around them. Because when you suffer from depression, one of the first things to become impaired is really your judgment. So one's ability to self-reflect and say, I think I might really be depressed and need help can be impaired. And that's why it's really incumbent on, you know, family and friends and partners to say, I, 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 I'm concerned something's wrong. Please let me talk with you about it. And to really ask the kinds of questions and then help them to get help, to get treatment. Because another thing that's very difficult when you're depressed is frankly, reaching out to do just about anything. And, um, and so obviously, um, these two people were people who had the financial ability to get treatment. They had the, um, intellectual ability to know perhaps to get treatment, but that doesn't mean one necessarily is getting is following through on treatment. Um, and, um, therefore is doing necessarily the, the, you know, the most that can be done to protect against something like suicide. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, there's so much in there I want to unpack. Uh, I'll, I'll stick to some highlights. Red flags in, in loved ones and ourselves. Can you go over some of those? Sure. So red flags for depression or, you know, major, I'm talking about clinical depression. Everybody gets sad sometimes, right? Everybody, if something terrible happens, then people are sad more of the time and that's not a problem really. But if someone is more than sad, is feeling hopeless or helpless or worthless, a good chunk of their day, many days, actually really weeks in a row, if someone is having a disturbance in their ability to go to sleep or stay asleep in their appetite, either lost it or eating too much, in their ability to take pleasure in things that they used to take pleasure in, Um, and feels exhausted or irritable or angry uh, more than, you know, seems reasonable or usual for them, um, then those are things that make you think about depression, really clinical depression. But for suicide, really, it's a little different. You know, someone may seem depressed or a little depressed um, or anxious, but moreover, they may make some comments about being a burden, feeling ashamed of something. Shame is a big driver of suicide. Um, They may um, give things away. They may stop making some future plans. They may be using substances or alcohol in a greater degree than before. those kinds of things are, are more of a red flag for suicide. And if you have any inkling, if, if, if it even comes to your head, then sometimes, you know, we try to push those things away. No, no, that couldn't be. Plus, it's a horribly scary thought about somebody that you love or care about. But the better thing to do is simply to say, you know, I, I know you've been struggling. I know it's been a really hard time. I'm wondering, you know, have you had thoughts of harming yourself? 
And, you know, it's it's a myth that if you ask about suicide, you'll suggest suicide. That's simply not true. Um, if you ask about suicide and someone's been thinking about suicide, then they very well may tell you. And if they do say, yes, I, I have had those thoughts, then you really need to go the next step and say, do you have a plan? What would you do? And if they tell you what they would do, you are in a position to really save a life. You're in a position to take away the pills, the gun, the whatever is the particular momentary threat um, and help them by bringing them to the emergency room or bringing them to a therapist that you help them arrange, but to get an evaluation and to get treatment. It's a sad reality that, for example, um, most suicides are committed with firearms. Um, in countries where access to guns has been limited, suicide rates drop. We aren't doing that in this country. And, you know, uh, guns kill far more people taking their own lives than they do kill other people. And if you know that somebody has a thought of harming themselves, you should remove at least temporarily their access to a firearm. You could totally save them in what may be an impulsive moment while they get some treatment and, and really save a life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this, you know, this is such a difficult but important conversation to have and, you know, getting through to people who are suicidal, who are depressed can seem really difficult. However, what you said is so important. You could save a life. And so if, if you know of anyone who you're suspicious of, have the courage to ask, have the courage to ask those, to have those conversations. Cause I think a lot of times with people that are severely depressed and even having suicidal thoughts, they feel so alone. They feel like no one, no one cares. And that's, that's part of the problem and part of the issue. Oh, and then this is also helpful, difficult conversation, but so helpful. So I appreciate you guiding us through it. My, my other question about this before we uh, shift gears to your amazing book that I'm so excited to talk to you about is you mentioned treatment. So for people who may be depressed themselves or have someone that they care about who they think is maybe not necessarily suicidal, but depressed, what do you mean by treatment? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, again, there's a difference between sort of mild depression, let's say, and more moderate or severe depression. And for, you know, someone who's having somewhat of a struggle, maybe they're mildly depressed, um, there are things that you could be doing for yourself. I'm, I'm sure you've probably talked about them on your program. Uh, things like, you know, intense aerobic exercise multiple times per week actually improves mood at a head to head level with medication. It, it is really, really effective. So, you know, helping, encouraging yourself or encouraging someone else, even when you don't feel like it, to do the intense aerobic workout a couple of times a week, staying away from alcohol and drugs because most of them are depressants and will actually make mood worse. Um, really trying to implement what I call good sleep hygiene, um, you know, going to bed at a regular hour, getting up at a regular hour that have at least seven to nine hours of sleep in there because sleep deprivation can also greatly impact mood. Um, healthy eating lifestyle impacts mood. Um, a big one is is reaching out 
in, in a social way. When people feel low, it's really hard to do that. And when people feel low, others sometimes stop doing that because whether they realize it or not, it's sort of this fear that like that sadness will be contagious and I don't want to be around it. But somebody who is low is really having a hard time reaching out. So saying to them, no, no, we're going to go to the restaurant or we're going to meet up with these friends or you're coming with me to the movie can really make a big difference for somebody. That social interaction can really help them feel less isolated and actually move their mood upward. But, you know, for someone who is having more of a struggle, absolutely going to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and getting an evaluation. What does that mean? That means someone's going to ask you about your family history because depression tends to run in families. It has genetic component, as do many of the kinds of things someone might seek an evaluation for. Um, they're going to ask you about any childhood trauma because people who have suffered real trauma often are more predisposed to having a mood disorder or anxiety disorder. They're, they're going to ask you about any medical conditions or recent medications you've gone on because actually those things can also cause depression or mood changes. And so that might need to be something to be looked at. They're going to talk to you about substances you're using, or alcohol you're using, and then they're going to sort of go through a checklist of symptoms with you and observe you and talk to you about what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what's going on. And that's sort of the the art of the clinical diagnosis. You know, what does this, does this person have? you know, meet enough of the symptoms, the criteria for the symptoms, but also have that, that feeling to me as a clinician of being really depressed or really anxious. Um, and, and that would sort of be another piece of the evaluation. And if the conclusion is that in fact, this is a, you know, more moderate, um, depression, then, there are different kinds of psychotherapies that can be recommended. So, you know, something like a psychodynamic psychotherapy where you're looking at conflicts that person has, unconscious conflicts, re repetitive behaviors that are all contributing to the depression and trying to understand them, uncover what's unconscious and understand that conflict. Or something that's more in the model of cognitive behavioral therapy where you're trying to look at the person's thoughts or as we say, cognitions, and help that person identify their negative cognitions, what leads to those when they're having them, what behaviors that leads to, and then essentially interrupt that process by offering yourself really replacement thoughts or cognitions and altering the chain of behaviors that keeps that, that pattern in place. So those are there's there are different kinds of psychotherapy one can do. And I would always recommend psychotherapy at least. And then for some people for whom they're in a more moderate or severe situation where perhaps even learning from the therapy will be difficult because they're impaired enough from the depression where medication might be needed to to allow them to really engage in the therapy and learn from the therapy and make the changes that they want to make as well as improve the symptoms. And then you might do both. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. And one of the things that my, my listeners know that, that you don't is at around 11 or 12, I was diagnosed with depression and started taking Prozac and was on antidepressants until I was about 29 or so. So a big part of my life and everything you said 
was so important to being able to come off medication. And it continues to be really important for me to not dip back into that. But I love what you said about um, how medication can be, it can almost be like a cast, right? It, it sort of helps you, you need a cast to help a bone heal so that before you can get to rehabbing it. Yeah. And I see medication like that in a lot of ways, like it can be helpful so that the therapy is, the therapy can work. Um, and yeah. it really is a, there's not a one size fits all and there's not a, a one, one thing you can do for depression. I found, I found that it does take. That's true. That's true. And, you know, like it or not, um, I mean, sometimes that's great because there are different avenues that you can, you can take in to get treatment and more than one thing could work. But at the same time, it's very frustrating sometimes for patients, understandably, because you might try one thing that doesn't work and then need to try a different thing. And, you know, it can be uh, a long road and it can be a hard struggle along the way. Yes. It was a long road for me, but so worth it. <laughs> so so worth it because I learned so much about myself and my life and it's it's inspired so much what I do today because uh, I really understand people who struggle with depression and anxiety, which which is a great segue to to your book, which I just I just love. And I know listeners, you're gonna love this book. So it's called The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius. Can you just share a little bit about what inspired this book and the essence of what it's about? Absolutely. So I, you know, I had been in private practice for many, many years. I am in New York City. I do see a very high functioning group of people who are, you know, in many ways, very successful in their careers and in, in their lives and creatively. Um, but obviously they're coming to see me because they're having some sort of terrible struggle um, in terms of their mental health. And I really noted how commonly it came together that someone was really creative and talented, but also really struggling. In addition, I, I was doing this series at the 92nd Street Y here as a very large cultural center, um, a lecture series um, for several years called Psychobiography, where I would pair with a historian on um, someone who we would consider to be an iconic genius, you know, in history, who really changed the face of whatever their field was, and look at sort of what made them tick. And it was hard to find a subject I found, whether I'm talking about the sciences or the arts or writing or, or uh, music, uh, and not find out that actually that person really had a mental health struggle or a learning disability. And I was really struck by that. And um, so I started really researching this area, the neuroscience, the cutting edge neuroscience that's been going on looking at um, the hardwired link in the brain between mental illnesses of various sorts and learning disabilities of various sorts and extraordinary abilities and found um, you know, incredibly very specific strengths that tend to come hardwired paired to these very difficult struggles. And that, you know, the, the book is really an exploration of that from a science perspective, but also from a personal, you know, clinical perspective, look, you know, understanding people's stories of how they've managed both the struggle but also play to their strengths to be able to be, you know, exceptionally talented in their arena. Maybe some of them you would even call genius level talent. Mm. 
Mm. Oh, okay. So for, well, let me just ask you this. Why do you think there's such a profound connection between the two? Well, if I, you know, obviously there's no way for me to say, I know this, I know this. there is no, you know, there is not a data-driven answer, but, you know, evolutionarily speaking, why have the, why has major depression, why have anxiety disorders, why has bipolar disorder, attention deficit disorder, why have these things stuck around with us? You know, if they, if they were sort of nothing but a problem, um, you would think that at least the frequency would drop from an evolutionary perspective because they would only cause one to be less likely to pass on your own genes, right? Um, if if they only caused you to, you know, suffer and languish and be isolated and not mate and, you know, commit suicide. I mean that, but but in fact, not only have these genes um, stayed with us all this time, but it's really in very high numbers so that, you know, I, in the book, I refer to these as brain differences as opposed to illnesses, because really, um, at some point or another, close to half of all Americans will have a mental health diagnosis. That's, that's hard to say that's unusual and, you know, um, something, some real genetic anomaly. Um, and I think it's because, that this pairing exists, that that the genes that pass on this particular struggle also pass on these very particular strengths, which um, which evolutionarily one would want to keep in the species. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I can just, you know, to personalize it, because I think when we hear things like this, it, we can understand it better if we relate it back to our lives or someone we know. You know, for me, being diagnosed with depression, and and again, like my mind also goes to, we've come up with these labels and these diagnoses, but are they just because when these labels and diagnoses came up, came out, we didn't have the understanding of what a highly empathic child or highly intuitive child or highly creative child, like how their brain may be different. So that's, that's, that's another conversation. But I think about the, the, if we depression diagnosis that, that I was given that I t- truly see as a blessing because in so many ways it's made me more empathic. It's made me yes. more, um, that kind of inward focus has inspired my own self-discovery, which then has inspired me to help others discover themselves. And I can think of someone that I know very well who ADD, dyslexia, those kind of labels and just a highly creative, more, more social than linear type of brain. And and that's such, that's such a gift. So these, do do you see like a direct correlation between this, the different disorders and, and how they show up in adult life as gifts or is it more? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there are definitely, so for example, you were talking about yourself and, and when you look at the data that exists on depression, major depression, um, there absolutely is a higher incidence of empathy. Now, whether that's because someone has suffered the depression themselves, as you were suggesting it may be for you, or whether actually empathy is more hardwired in those that already are going to go on to have depression is, you know, the jury's out on that. Um, and maybe it's some of both. But there is no question but that there is this connection between depression and empathy, particular insight, creativity, something um, realism, which is not being 
you know, optimistic or pessimistic, but very realistic. Um, and actually, it's kind of interesting because most people who don't have depression actually see things a little more optimistically than is real. Uh, we all have a slightly, you know, rosy colored view, um, which has its pluses, no, no question about it. But, um, but people with depression tend to have a more realistic view. And that certainly can be a strength when you need to see what's coming down the road or assess what, what is happening in the present. Um, and along those same lines, tend to have more obsessiveness and perfectionism, again, can be a double-edged sword. That perfectionism can be very, you know, self-loathing um, and scathing um, when in the midst of a depression, but not in the midst of a depression, that kind of perfectionism can actually make you quite good at whatever it is you've, you've put your mind to to be doing. So, um, so that is true, and it's different from the kinds of strengths one sees hardwired with with people, for example, with attention deficit disorder or, you know, in other words, distractibility at a level that really impairs them in terms of attending to things that sometimes they want to attend to, but just cannot. And that is the strength of exceptional originality and creativity. And that has to do with the fact that the wiring difficulty in the attentional realm is in an area called the default network. And it is the area that houses imagination, basically, fantasy, right? And um, so there, there are more uh, pathways being run and being run without a switch that one is so consciously able to turn off and on. So it's not that you can't attend. It's that your ability to regulate when you attend and when you don't attend is impaired. But when something really captures your interest and you feel passionately excited about it, then you might actually not only attend like anybody else, but you might do what's called hyper-focus, super attend, be able to attend better and longer than, than someone who does not have this kind of problem. And, and that can be an incredible gift in terms of what you are working on and what you're attending. And of course, this, because the switch is faulty, this free flow of ideas in the center for imagination leads to a lot of highly creative, high output, um, high energy, intuitiveness that um, can be a huge plus for people with ADD. Oh, yes, yes. And this is just such important work because what you're doing is you're taking these labels that most people interpret as something's wrong with me and really showing how, how they are gifts. And I think the problem in our educational system and just where we are in the world, and this is just lack of education, this is, this is just, but we're evolving out of it, which is awesome, is that we look more about how these things are hindrances to fitting into the normal structure of things than they are really blessings and gifts. So, and I'm sure you cover a lot of this in your book, so everybody will have to get the book, but I'd love to to give a little sneak peek for both parents who maybe have a child who's ADD, uh, learning disability, autistic, um, or, or an adult, someone right now who is uh, dealing with one of these brain differences, how, as a parent, can you really cultivate the gifts rather than trying to just manage the difference? And how can you do that for yourself as an adult as well? Yeah. So... First of all, I certainly I'm pretty clear in the book and I and I just want to be clear that 
These are strengths. And I think it's absolutely key that you figure out what yours or your child's strength is and you play to that because ultimately that's that's where the money is for you know future success and engagement in life and and self-esteem. And so that's really important. But I don't I don't in any way want to condone not paying attention to the struggle, to the suffering and getting treatment because the the overarching premise is that all of this is based in what is called the U-shaped curve, meaning when you have mild to moderate disorder, you're more likely to exhibit these strengths than someone who does not have the disorder. But when you have more severe disorder, then you are less likely to exhibit the strength. And it's not because it's not there or not still hardwired there, but because when you are very ill, you your ability to organize yourself and manifest the strength is really impaired. So um, not to mention the fact that you suffer a lot. So it's really important to, to get treatment. That, that I want to be very clear about. But treatment, acknowledgement of one of these problems and treatment in no way detracts from it will only accentuate the the strength once you figure out what it is. And so how does one go about doing that? Um, sometimes it will be apparent because it will be the thing that you're drawn to and you're excited about and um, and a parent will start to note it or an individual will start to note it. But sometimes that's not the case. Um, being exposed to different opportunities, um, you know, whether that is a, a class you take or an experience in school or an experience out of school, a museum you went to. Uh, a book that you're reading your child or reading for yourself to explore different subject matter that may be interesting to you and may actually line up with your set of strengths is sort of an, a good initial step and something to be thinking about as you move along. Sometimes it's still difficult to tell what is what, and that's where potentially neuropsychological testing can be super helpful. Um, that is something that can be, you know, you can talk to someone at the school about who can do that for a student at the school. You can seek that privately. You can seek that as an adult. But people tend to think of neuropsych testing as being only identifying, again, your weaknesses, right? And while it's true that it does do that and it can do that, it also does identify your strengths, your very particular strengths. And so that can be fantastic data figuring out, you know, what you're good at basically and what what's working for you. And then it's a matter of what I call the 80-20 rule, which is as you mentioned, you know, we're so focused on problems in this in this society, problems. And people who recognize something's going on with the child or themselves tend to spend all their time immersed in the problem and the solution for the problem. And really, that leaves no time for developing the strengths. And in fact, if anything, in talking with many of the experts who are on the forefront of this area, what you want to do is spend more like 80% of your time developing strengths and maybe 20% of your time shoring up problems or weaknesses. So yes, you want to go to therapy, but you don't want to be in constant therapy. Um, and you do want to spend more of your time um, developing what is what can work for you, what is working for you, having more exposure to that. Part of that might require a parent to 
um, speak with their schools, speak with their teachers in a not in a you aren't doing this, which never goes very well or, you know, um, people get defensive and, you know, feel attacked and then they don't get very much further with that. But really, in a, I have discovered this about my child, something that you might not be able to see in the classroom because of the way, you know, most assignments are structured. Would it be possible to give this latest, you know, assignment in a way that plays to my child's strengths so they can really show what they know? So whether that's they're a more visual learner or a more auditory learner or, um, you know, they have an excitement about this. Can they use this subject matter to, you know, to to explain or project or, you know, show whatever the information is that you want them to be able to show. And teachers are often really, if you, if you come to them with information and sort of a help me help you um, approach, teachers are often very willing to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I just, I just love this. And I, I hope that in the future, we really are calling these brain differences versus disorders. I just, I have so much respect for you that you're bringing this conversation into our world because I think that, you know, there, there's what happens and then there's what we make it mean in life. And being told you have a disorder versus you have a brain difference and there's going to be strengths and weaknesses that come with that, just like anything else in life is such a powerful, powerful reframe. So just for anyone listening, if you've ever had one of these labels or have one now, ADD, anxiety, depression, bipolar, autism, whatever it is, could you hold it as a brain difference and really look at, all right, what, how do I need to manage this? What's the treatment that I need? But how do I really see the gifts in this as well? Because I think when people are labeled with a disorder, they see it so much more of a liability. And this conversation is really helping us see it as an asset and a gift. So thank you so much for this work. Oh, well, it's, you know, I, I hope, thank you. Well, first of all, of, of course, it is beyond, it's kind of my mission and my, but I really am hoping that in addition, this has somewhat of an impact on the issue of stigma, which is still such a problem in our country that the children take three to five years to, from the first presentation of symptoms to actually get a diagnosis on average. And that's a very long time for suffering and being derailed developmentally from where you could be or should be. And part of the reason for that is that even though parents may see something going on, it's so painful, right? It's so stigmatized. It's so uncomfortable for a parent to even acknowledge to themselves that that might be what's going on, that they don't. Um, and it's not out of malice. You know, they love their child. They just don't want this to be the case. I think that if we could understand that this is so, 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 so often the case and the case doesn't mean, you know, a death sentence or a, a, your, your child won't grow up to be a, a happy and successful person. Um, they just need certain kinds of tools along the way to do that. And that, in fact, they may in some ways really excel if you can help them figure out what that direction is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I'm I'm grateful that I had parents that helped me manage that and, and helped me excel. You know, one thing that was so brilliant that they did was um, got me into acting classes outside of the school, like away from the school and the social anxiety where a lot of my depression came from. And 
And, and also I became an extreme overachiever to compensate for where I felt less than, but having that creative outlet and that permission to kind of pretend and get away. Oh, that was, that was huge for me. And I think I was actually quite good at it because of everything I was feeling, you know, because yeah, yeah. So tap into all these, this range of emotions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the stigma thing is so important, which is why I speak so openly about my struggles. Cause I, even in my early twenties, I was still hiding my medication from people. You know, if, if I ever was dating someone or went on a trip with somebody, I would make sure that I didn't have my medication bottle with me. I'd put it in a plastic bag or something because I had so yeah. much shame about it, so much shame about it. So so I, I, I love that we're living in a time where we're starting to uh, take the stigma off, circling back to our initial conversation about suicide. You know, part of the reason I think that the rates are, you know, as high as they are too is because there still is a lot of stigma uh, around yes. mental health. So the more we can have a conversation about it and bring it into the light and talk about it and, and give people a new perspective on it that you said, like you said, it's not a death sentence. It, it doesn't doom you. And there, there is not only a way out of it, but a way to transform it. So, oh, what an important conversation to be having. Please tell everybody where they can get the book and where they can connect with you and follow your amazing work. Thank you. Yeah. The book is available pretty much everywhere that you usually find books, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, many bookstores are carrying it. And I have a website, www.drgailsaltz.com, Dr. Gail Saltz. Um, they can tweet me at my Twitter is at Dr. Gail Saltz. And um, they can also reach out to me on Facebook. Cool. Great. And we'll link all that up in the show notes. Thank you so, so, so much. I know that people are just going to receive so much, not only just benefit from the show, but also just reassurance <laughs> for, for themselves or, or for their children. So thank you for, thank you for making this your mission. Well, thank you so much for having me and uh, letting me spread the word. If you're looking to buy a car, you're probably familiar with terms like MSRP. You might even know what it stands for, but what does it actually mean? The same goes for invoice, list price, and dealer price. It's enough to confuse anybody. All you're really looking for is a price that actually means something. Introducing True Price from True Car. Now you can know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories, before you even get to the dealership. True Car dealers will show you the true price on cars like the one you want, all from the comfort of home. And how do you know if your true price is a great price? Well, because True Car shows you what other people paid for the same car you want. And your certified dealers know this, so they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. All right, everybody, that's Coach's Corner for this week. Every Wednesday, you catch your live life coaching episode. Every Saturday is a Coach's Corner. Until next time, wishing you much love and many blessings.